Hello, I'm Dr. Judy Puddyfoot, a veterinary surgeon from the UK, and this is the Underdog Vet Podcast, home of the Animal Advocate interviews. Join me as I chat to some truly inspiring people who have dedicated their lives to improving the health and welfare of animals around the world. My guests include a variety of people from vets and campaigners to those who have founded or work for animal charities. But one thing they all have in common with you and I is that they're passionate animal advocates. Dotted in between episodes, I'll throw in some pause for thought, where I talk to you about my personal take on subjects inspired by my work as a vet. Hit subscribe to get notified about new releases. Details on how you can get in touch are at the end of this episode, and I hope you enjoy this latest instalment. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this episode of the Underdog Vet Podcast. In this episode's Animal Advocate interview, I spoke to veterinary surgeon and author, Dr. Sean Wensley. Sean is a senior veterinary surgeon at the veterinary charity, the PDSA, and a recent president of the British Veterinary Association here in the UK. He also chairs the Animal Welfare Working Group of the Federation of Veterinarians of Europe, which represents veterinary organisations from 40 European countries. Sean has contributed to animal welfare and conservation projects around the world, and in 2017, he received the inaugural World Veterinary Association Global Animal Welfare Award for Europe. Sean's first book, through a vet's eyes, how we can all choose a better life for animals, was selected as one of the Financial Times' best summer books of 2022. In the first half of our chat, Sean and I spoke about the PDSA's 2022 Paul Report, an annual survey of British pet owners providing insights into animal welfare issues and more understanding about how people care for their pets. We then moved on and spent some time talking about Sean's book. We spoke about specific animal welfare issues, how nature can be healing, and how we as animal lovers and consumers can affect change for the better through our choices and using our voices. So, Sean, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and giving up some of your time. I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate you giving up some time. Let's start by you telling everyone who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, well, uh, massive thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yep, my name's uh, Sean Wensley. I'm a senior vet at PDSA. I've been working at PDSA now since 2008. Prior to PDSA, I'd worked in, in veterinary practice, mainly companion animal and some exotics work, some of the less familiar species. And during my employed time, I've also had the pleasure of doing some work with our professional bodies. So um, I've been closely involved with the British Veterinary Association uh, at one time or another, including as a, a year spent as president. And I've also been chairing the Animal Welfare Working Group of the Federation of Vets of Europe, the representative body for vets in Europe, making representations to European institutions and others. So, yeah, a mix of veterinary practice and policy, advocacy and research. I'm delighted to be able to do all of that as a vet and in the name of Animal Welfare. As you mentioned there, you wear many, many hats. And I know that uh, recently you've written a book as well. So what we'll do is we'll split this chat into a game of two halves, I suppose, as you call it. I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about your work as a vet at the PDSA, including their annual 
Paul report. And then we'll touch on your book through a vet's eyes a little bit later in the in the second half, if that's okay. Yeah, fab. Thank you. So for those listening who might not know, you did mention obviously the PDSA there. So who are they and what do they do? PDSA is is the UK's leading veterinary charity. So we provide free and low-cost care for the pets of people who can't afford private veterinary care. You have to be on certain means tested benefits to be eligible to access our care and of course people dip in and out of that eligibility many of us have secure jobs some are perfectly capable of affording our of affording veterinary care at the time we take a pet on but all of us are pretty much a hair's breadth away from everything changing on the, on the turn of a penny so we have some long-standing clients and some who come to us for a period just uh, as a safety net at a time of need and then um, they go back into the sort of private veterinary healthcare system. We do that through a nationwide network of charity veterinary hospitals, which are providing a, a standard sort of first opinion service, veterinary service, um, and at a standard that would be largely indistinguishable from private veterinary practice. There's, of course, some constraints because we're a charity, but we're not running on a shoestring, as, as some people think. It's not really paired back. And aside from that very, very busy clinical work through all of the hospitals, we also work on trying to improve the lot of our companion animals, our pets. So we're trying to raise awareness of their welfare needs and the meeting of those needs. And we do that through a combination of research and policy and advocacy, and of course, collaborating with other charities and, and the veterinary associations as well. You mentioned there that people need to be on certain benefits or get certain help from certain areas to access the PDSA services. Have you, with the cost of living crisis, had to change or amend that at all? Or, and I don't know, I, I think as a vet, I might have noticed it in the last five years that there might have been a slight, a slight narrowing of the eligibility criteria, shall we say, um, or is that just my imagination? I suspect that's probably perception rather than reality. So we do keep an eye on the eligibility criteria, but to be honest, we don't change them very often because we want our clients to know where they stand um, and indeed the profession that we work with to know where they stand. So if we're frequently making changes, they have to be well thought through and well communicated as well to make sure we've got that kind of nice hand-in-glove relationship with the, the private part of the profession. So no, it may just be, I mean, that perception could arise through just appreciation that so many more people are struggling at the moment. And I know there's a lot of discussion in the media. The groups of society that typically struggle is now broadening. And a lot of people who are classed as usually sort of in the middle somewhere are also really feeling the pinch. It's a perennial issue that even when we're focusing on those most in need, there is a threshold, there is a boundary, and there's always someone that's just one step the wrong side of that from their perspective. And that's really tough for us as a charity in, in trying to make affordable uh, veterinary care available on a needs-based basis in a way that's you know transparent and, and fair and ethically justified. As in the NHS, you know, allocating scarce resource is, is a challenge. And unfortunately, we can't we can't help everybody. That's that's a fact. I mean, even where we can't help everybody, we still do our utmost to signpost elsewhere. We have different types of different aspects of the service aside from just attending our hospitals. And as I mentioned earlier, we collaborate with the other charities as well to try and make sure that between us, we can help as best we can. I mentioned earlier about the poor report. Now, this has been going on for a few years now. And tell us what the poor report is. Yeah, the poor report is really exciting. So I, as I say, I've been at 
PDSA since 2008 and PDSA has been around for over 100 years. And for most of that history, we've been providing the charitable veterinary service through the hospitals. I mean, like many of the long-standing and much-loved charities in the UK, there's fantastic archive footage of our founder and the early vets pushing prams door-to-door through cobbled streets on black and white archive footage. You know, that to go from the, these humble beginnings to, to the massive operation that, that we are now is 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 brilliant to reflect on but most of that history was spent delivering the charitable service um the charitable service in around 2006 started to put an emphasis on prevention as well as treatment so at that time we started to introduce vaccination and neutering um, microchipping and so on which we hadn't previously and then in about 2008 when i joined there was also a desire to play a role in pet welfare advocacy so to sort of look up and out away from the hospitals part of these broader conversations about how do we tackle obesity as its root cause how do we meaningfully contribute to the problem of health harms related to breeding for flat faces and you know the the, the headline well-known pet welfare problems how could we be more of a, a presence in both stimulating that national conversation as a respected national charity and then working with others to try and find practical solutions so I, my role uh, was, when I joined in 2008, was to help assist with, with that kind of developing part of PDSA's work. But it quickly became apparent that if you focus purely on essentially media coverage, so you can go on and have, you know, fantastic discussions and debates on national radio and well, local radio, just across print and broadcast media, you don't really know what's happened as a result of that. You know, you, might, you can get a sense, but you're not quite sure what impact you're having in the world. And, in, and of course, in participating in those activities, because we're a charity and we have limited resource, we are effectively diverting some of the resource from the hospitals to that outreach and, and advocacy. So it's really important that we try to get a sense of whether we're having impact or not um, and that the money was being well spent. So the poor report was an initiative to seek to provide companion animal welfare surveillance in the UK, which we don't currently have. There's no government funded welfare surveillance. And by welfare surveillance, I mean a regular, robust, objective assessment of whether the UK's pets are having their welfare needs met. So we sought to undertake that very research and essentially asked the question, a research question, are the UK's pet dogs, cats and rabbits having their five welfare needs met? Of course, not long before that, the UK Animal Welfare Act had come into force, which then described pet welfare in terms of the five welfare needs and introduced those as a, a legal obligation. So pet owners had this new legal duty of care to provide them. But we don't really put a, a, a strong sort of heavy handed focus on that. It's not a very legalistic message that we have. It's just that that's a nice five point plan to a pet's health and happiness. And it would be good through the poor report to find out to what extent it's it's happening. The one thing I would say is it's not just a survey of PDSA clients. So we work with, with YouGov, the market research company, to obtain a nationally representative sample of UK pet owners. And we've been doing that now since annually, since 2011. And that's been a, a pleasure to be able to work on. And we work closely with the, the devolved governments in the UK who now recognise that it is a unique and valuable data set. Obviously, both you and I as vets have done a lot of research and statistics. And honestly, as somebody who hates statistics, all credit to the people who have to go through this data and get and pare it down and get to the actual interesting points that are in this, because I can imagine it is a thankless task. But drilling down into the details of the 2022 poor report, 
it states that there are currently 10.2 million dogs, just over 11 million cats, and 1 million rabbits in the UK. But with a massive one quarter of all those having been acquired in just the two years between March 2020 and March 2022. Now, we all know what happened during that time. But that massive injection of of acquiring of animals in the UK must have put a huge strain on both charities. And I can personally vouch for that it's also put a massive strain on the veterinary profession in general. Have you noticed that at the PDSA? Yes, it's fascinating. I mean, I I guess one thing that's interesting is how during the pandemic and the lockdowns in particular, there seemed to be this universal reaching by humanity for the non-human world. So we had campaigns from RSPB and others looking at solace in nature and people saying they hadn't noticed nature on their doorstep in quite the same way they hadn't appreciated it in quite the same way and they'd never valued it so much and I think an extension of that is people's desire to have meaningful access to companion animals and this sort of drive to acquire a dog or a cat and through the poor report we also look at some of people's motivations for getting pets and also some of the kind of mental health benefits that they would self-report from having them and unsurprisingly you know they talk about wanting the companionship a reason to get up in the morning a prompt to go for a walk in the local area every single day because they have to and you know all of these sorts of things so on the one hand that was a nice reminder of how important nature and animals are to us but of course when on the the latter in particular from our perspective as vets wanting to make sure that that those pets welfare needs are met when they are acquired in, in numbers it's also a bit alarming because some of the problems that we've well recorded through previous poor reports is the amount i.e very little of pre-acquisition research that a lot of owners do so there's still quite a lot of impulse purchasing or even if it's not impulse purchasing just pu- purchasing without knowing what we're taking on essentially for very many years ahead and then what else we were able to observe and assess through through poor are some of the risks to lack of socialization you know particularly for dogs and cats so there were puppies being bought that couldn't go out and about because of the lockdowns and they weren't having those critical early life experiences that are so important for shaping their future personality and temperament and suitability as a well-adjusted family member and so then we started to be able to see some of the separation in particular the separation related behaviors that have come off the back of that i think you know with all of these things as i sort of hinted earlier our tone is important so none of this is to sort of bash anybody over the head and, and wave a finger and say you know look at the terrible state of pet welfare in this country it's more to flag the problems and take them seriously, but then think, how can we help people and how can we better devise I don't know, things like the pet acquisition journey in future so that we reduce the chance of these problems happening in future as well? Yeah, it's ironic that despite people having spent more time than ever before with their dogs in particular over the last couple of years, we're seeing more and more behaviour problems with the dogs that, that certainly that I see every day. Yeah, and I think a big part of that, isn't it, is that they had a lot of, they had probably more contact than usual when they were in their new home uh, under lockdown conditions because people were working home and they couldn't leave the house. And so puppies and young adult dogs that may have been on their own from quite a young age under normal circumstances had all of that early contact, which really should be good for their welfare and good for their development. But then when the lockdowns were lifted, suddenly you know, life went back to normal and we see the percentage of dogs around a fifth that now routinely on a typical workday spend five hours or more on their own at home. So that's always been a problem. But for those who 
got used to having lots of human contact and then lost it, that can also be quite a, a trigger um, for separation-related problems, as you know. Yeah, I think it's it just shows you, doesn't it, the fine line between spending too much time with your dog actually gives them separation anxiety when you then have to leave them, but then not spending enough gives them other behavioural problems because you're not interacting enough. And that's obviously because dogs are highly sociable. There are dogs, essentially, that need to fit into a human world. And that just just really highlights what you said earlier about how important it is for people to get that information before they get a dog. As I say, I've probably said this in every single podcast, your vet or your vet practice is more than happy to talk to you. We don't charge you to do this, by the way. You can phone us and ask us or one of our registered veterinary nurses for some advice about should you get a pet, if you should, what pet should you get, etc. Because every species has a different requirement. Dogs have a certain set of requirements, which are very different to cat requirements, which again are very different to rabbit requirements. So get your information before and set yourself up for success, but also set your animal up for the best success. Yeah, and we talk about that loads as well. I mean, we we have a primary focus on wanting pets to enjoy being pets, so for them to have a a good experience of of living with families. But of course, we recognise that, as I've said, they are often uh, considered a a much-loved family member. And if that relationship breaks down, then you have a relatively rubbish experience of pet ownership if you're not careful and it's not rewarding and you don't enjoy it. So we're trying to achieve that for both. But on the pre-purchase side, I mean, we've done, we were doing quite a bit of work on this, even more than we were then able to before the pandemic. But I'll just mention it quickly. I'm so glad you mentioned the pre-purchase kind of consultation type idea at veterinary practices. We've been monitoring the number of or the percentage of practices that are actually proactively offering that as a service. And it's still quite low, but it's increasing year on year. And as you say, they're typically free. People anecdotally don't go and look for that advice from before they get a pet because they just don't think about it as an idea, or they don't think to go to the, the vets for that kind of advice. Or even if they have the idea to go to the vets, they might think that the vets and nurses are, are either too busy and or too expensive. And as you've totally debunked, you know, we would throw our arms wide open and say, we'd love to have that conversation with you. And it's and it's typically offered for free. But we have we did create a, a pre-purchase consultation model. So for any practitioners listening, uh, vets and nurses, they can have a look at, at that. And we've talked about it with BVA have helped us promote this. And that's the sort of game of, well, I was going to say two halves, it's two and a bit halves. But just briefly, if you've got that chance to talk to someone in your consultation room and you want to use a bit of a framework, a model for the structuring the conversation, then the first part can think about your lifestyle and circumstances. And that can help determine the species and breed that's likely to be suitable for you. So we use a PETS acronym for that, P-E-T-S, and that stands for play exercise time and spend so we sensitively and appropriately ask questions about the kind of place where you live classically you know are you in a high-rise versus next to a nice big park how much exercise would you be willing and able to provide how much time would you be willing and able to provide and spend is asking about whether you have a realistic idea and understanding of of monthly and lifetime costs and that then creates a short list of species and breeds because You've ruled out your border collie, but guinea pigs might still be in there. And then we go on to talk about the five welfare needs, uh, environment, diet, behavior, companionship, and health. So if you're really interested in guineas, then we talk about the importance of having two on the companionship need, that they have a nice big living space with an attached exercise run. We can talk about all the critical issues around diets, particularly, you know, rabbits, guineas. They have lots of nutritional problems, as we know. And the third little bit that we just then talk about and add on at the end is sourcing, responsible sourcing. So perhaps there's a local rescue that we think is really brilliant, or if you want to get an accredited breed of dog or, or whatever, but we can give you some 
signposting on not only which pets to get, but also where to get them from. And I suppose importantly, where to avoid the red flags for puppy farms and that sort of thing. So it works really nicely. And I would love, I think, you know, I hope we can put more emphasis on that in the future. But um, those that have adopted it and use it said they found it helpful. So that's a good start. I will put the link to the pre-purchase model on, on the show notes for anyone who wants to access that. Now, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things you mentioned there, actually, about the welfare of the animal that you're getting and also then go on to talk about the places that people are getting their pets from. So the welfare situation for rabbits is obviously a massive issue. Well, we know it's a massive issue in veterinary medicine. I'm not sure whether actually the general pet owning public know that it's perhaps such a, a welfare crisis for, for poor bunnies, but your, your poor report for rabbits, the situation just seems bad on all fronts, to be honest, <laughs> if you were looking at it from a rabbit's perspective. The 2022 poor report says that for rabbits, almost half of all rabbits live indoors and they live alone with no other rabbit buddy. And 21% spend no time interacting with their owners, which is ironic as nearly half of all cats do live with another cat. And yet cats really don't want to live with other cats. Rabbits do want to live with other rabbits. Cats don't want to live with other cats. So that's what going back to what we were saying about getting your information accurate before you even get a pet about what does this act, this species actually need. But what does this tell us about the general public's understanding of their pet's needs? Yeah, this brilliant to raise all this. I think the first thing is our awareness and understanding of animals' needs, in this case pets' needs, is growing all the time, not least because of so-called animal welfare science, which is really objectively helping us understand their needs and their wants and their preferences and their pleasures and their pains in a way that we hadn't been able to previously. And it's quite a new science. So that's been influential in helping us see that a species like a rabbit that people might think aren't that intelligent and don't need too much and you can put them down at the bottom of the garden and, and they'll be fine. It's actually a really complex animal that is eminently capable of learning and really values companionship from other animals and there's a richness to them emotionally and intellectually it might surprise people to use that word but cognitively that means you know they need they need more than just being put in a hutch at the bottom of the garden and shoved a bowl of rabbit muesli but of course there are people who find that out and then it trickles into the veterinary profession and veterinary nurses and indeed vets and vet nurses might be some of the people doing the research that finds it out in the first place but we need to get it out to then the public and the industry and this is a really, really gradual process. I mean, I think the, the speed of progress is frustrating for us, but change is happening. So I, I mean, one example I could give, and this has been one of the most rewarding trends to observe through the poor report, is that the percentage that are just being fed a bowl of so-called rabbit food, you know, a mix of seeds and flakes, and not enough hay which they, or grass, which they need for their teeth and their digestive system, is dropping. So there's, over time, fewer are being fed muesli and more are being fed the, the required amount of hay. So that's been a good... I mean, I've, I think I'm eternally optimistic. But you can look at things like this and see objectively, because not least because we have the poor data, we can see that that is going in the right direction. And it has taken a lot of collaboration. Some of the big retailers, because of our representations to them, committed to not sell certain types of food, or they've, they'll really heavily promote the good stuff and that sort of thing. But half of rabbits are still living alone. Now that was also dropped a decade ago, it was 60%. So we've seen a 10% drop in the numbers that are living alone, but we still need to address that as well. The other thing it kind of touches on, and this is relevant to all pets, is the idea, it shifts the emphasis from surviving to thriving you know from your own friends and family and how you've heard people speak over the years 
oh, you know, my rapper did really well. They lived, they lived till X, no matter whatever X was, six, seven, eight years old. Regardless of whether that was a suitable lifespan, they could have been really miserable for that length of time. So there is something now about quality of life as well as, as well as quantity of life. And I guess I was going to say gone are the days, but hopefully soon will be gone the days when it's you just buy a hutch, you buy a bowl, you stick it down the garden and, and off we go. Things are changing. There's loads still to be done. And you're absolutely right. To compare and contrast rabbits with cats on that companionship need. This is the value of the five welfare needs, I think, because when you do that, there's five ticks. Companionship, as it applies to rabbits, says they need a friend. And anyone that's seen rabbits bonded and living together will know how rich and wonderful that is for them and us to watch. And yet for cats, it'll be a big red flag and say cats are naturally solitary animals and they might get on with other cats, but a lot of them will be chronically stressed by it. And yet we think, oh, that cat's a bit lonely. We'd better get them a friend. So you're at, yeah, I completely agree. It's a, it's a, a bit perverse, really. The problem is that we look at all other species from a human perspective. So of course we say, oh, the cat's lonely. I'm going to get another cat. Or the dog is having separation anxiety. I'll get another dog for it. That'll help. Doesn't always. Picking up on something you said in the poor report about acquisition and where people are getting their pets the proportion of pet owners getting their pets, and this includes all dogs, cats and rabbits from rescue centres, has decreased since 2020. Now, that's not only a worry, but a shame that fewer people are rehoming their pet over purchasing from breeders or worse, pet shops. Yeah, there are some broader trends there, I think, around the rise in the internet. And the internet during that period that you've just mentioned was particularly important because people couldn't go out because of the lockdowns. So it might be that we saw that drop in acquisition from rescue and rehoming centres because people couldn't go out. And so they were turning to the internet. I would share your hope that it does start to increase again, that people choose to rehome pets that need a home because at the moment in the cost of living crisis, we're seeing a huge uptick in the numbers of animals that are being relinquished to rehoming centres. So the numbers now that uh, are needing a home has risen. There's one thing about rehoming from a rescue in the UK. The flip side of that, of course, which is becoming ever more popular, is that people are rehoming animals from abroad. And the poor report nicely tells us that this has increased by 50% in the last year. That increases not only, obviously, the, the risk of importing diseases that we don't have currently in the UK pet population at work. I do see over the last few years dogs that are coming in with diseases that we haven't really seen. We were only warned about at vet school. We weren't told this is endemic in the UK population, but we were like, oh, they mentioned that in a lecture about foreign dogs. I remember that. But of course, also, it's we've seen people importing animals from abroad with, with certain mutilations, like ear cropping, for example. There have been some recent changes proposed to the law around that. Can you maybe expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, well, no, this is a this is a massive area, isn't it? And I think where I was saying Paul has a value in detecting and providing evidence for emergent issues. This is an absolute classic. This is something that we've just seen in the last few years. The trend towards people wanting to acquire pets from abroad, and then more recently to want to do that for reasons of um, having a a dog or a cat that's been so-called mutilated in a way that's illegal in the UK. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You can see on the, the general rehoming from abroad side that people are wanting to do the right thing. They're wanting to rehome for a start and they feel that's an ethical and charitable thing to do, which often it is. But then for some reason, they're either through things that they've seen online or things that they've 
heard for whatever reason they feel it's even more desirable to go to one of the charities that are Im- importing pets from various places including as far afield as china and the people who are involved with that are caring well-meaning people you know we can't forget that there's well-meaning intentions behind this but as you say a there is a fairly substantial uk population of dogs and cats that are requiring homes in the first place and b this massive risk of of introducing diseases that that we don't already have that really does require government intervention and pdsa and others are lobbying hard at the moment for the kept animals bill to be given parliamentary time and passed um so there's a piece that is really really important piece of legislation that's looking to tackle some of these issues but unfortunately because the way government affairs have been recently it's been a bit on the back burner but it's not been it's not dead as far as we know so we're putting on as much pressure as we possible can with BVA and others to get that across the line. But as you say, it will also pick up this desperate and emerging issue of people trying to acquire dogs with cropped ears. And this, for anyone that doesn't know, is where part of the ear is cut off without anaesthetic or pain relief in young puppies, purely for cosmetic reasons, so that they look a certain way that's deemed to be fashionable or desirable. And that's abhorrent, rightly illegal here in the UK, and yet not currently illegal to acquire them from elsewhere. People can imagine my thoughts on this. I mean, Mm. it's abhorrent. The tails, the ears, the breeding of them so they can't walk or breathe or function as animals just Mm. humanity needs to take a good hard look in the mirror i shall leave it there in the 11 years that the poor report has been conducted would you say generally welfare for the pets in the uk has improved or declined yeah great question as i said earlier i think as an optimist i maybe have a a subconscious bias towards noticing and welcoming the improvements so i guess i mean there's a serious part to that once we start to take animal sentience seriously and we realize that we can't just use animals as though they are insensitive we can't we can't simply use them for human benefit we're talking about here using them for the benefit of companionship but we use them for food we use them for sport and so on if they're unfeeling or we treat them as though they're unfeeling then you know we can do what we like to them it's no different to picking an apple off a tree and if we want to throw it or stamp on it or cook it that's up to us once we accept and recognize and are fully persuaded of their sentience which we now well are we have to take that into account and give them as best we can a good life and where it's applicable a humane death and that's actually quite radical it would change very many things that we currently accept as normal for lots of animals so as the scale of that task unfolds in front of you and for people like you and I who really care about it and want to try and help advance it in our careers it can seem pretty depressing and demoralizing because there's lots that isn't happening yet Uh, and I think that's just by virtue of there being so much to do so where things are improving like rabbit diets you know uptake of vaccinations in rabbits actually preventive healthcare for rabbits generally then that's good overall pet welfare i think it objectively probably is improving but it's slow isn't it and you've got to be in it for the long haul really i've just mentioned there the kept animals bill you touched on my book but one thing i wanted to do when i was writing that was make notes of anything that i spotted that might need to go in a future version you know like by way of updates and you're scribbling notes quite often when you're sort of plugged into that into the world of animal welfare and animal welfare legislation there is stuff happening all the time you know you and i both use twitter you see some of it on there and yeah i've actually found that exercise to be quite encouraging because i've got this little pad on my desk oh that needs to go in oh that needs to go in oh that's just happened that's and that's good that has to be a good thing even though we still feel as an absolute mountain to climb to make a kinder world Mm. which brings us on nicely to part two of this which is talking about your book 
through a vet's eyes. It's very good. It's very well written, very easy to engage with and therefore read. Part memoir, part educational, part plea, I would say. Some parts are difficult to read because you lay out the situation in animal welfare and the climate crisis very well. And for those of us who care about such things, it can be quite upsetting to see it laid quite so bare. Now, I would ask if this was a lockdown project to keep you busy. Can't have been, because as many people don't realise, veterinary medicine never actually shut down during lockdowns. So I presume you've fitted this around all your other bits and bobs that you do. So well done for that. So let me start by asking, why did you want to write it? Yeah, thanks. So it's through about size and the subtitle is how we can all choose a better life for animals. So it is very much in the vein of what we've been talking about. I wanted to, I suppose, two things, lay out, as you say, or sketch out what our relationships with animals that we use for our benefits look like and importantly feel like from the animal's perspectives. So it covers animals that we farm for food, our companion animals, horses used for sports, and then some wild animals impacted by human activity. And it both lays out some of the issues, but it also provides the supporting research, my pr principal motivation originally and it wasn't a lockdown project it took about approximately 10 years um, on and off I should say um, not sort of a line a day or anything like that but principally I thought that animal welfare science was so fascinating and so important the methodology is fascinating its implications are so important for affecting policy and legislation that I just wanted to communicate some of that fascinating science things like lame chickens that self-medicate with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories pain relief you know they we, we can get a handle on how much pain they're likely to be feeling by how much medicated feed they will consume that sort of things in there we know how much laying hens might want to access certain resources like a perch and an s-box because they'll learn a task to access those resources and then work really hard to continue to access them if you if they go pushing through a weighted door you can add more and more weights to the door and if there's something behind the door that they kind of like but they're not really that fussed about they'll give up but something like a perch to get on at, at, at dusk they're so highly motivated they will push and push and push through ever increasing weights i just thought the the general methodology um, of, of welfare science was fascinating and important that helps us talk about things that we probably as a self-confessed nation of animal lovers should should know about. I think you're right. That makes for can make for quite a hard and in some places upsetting read. But as you know, I also weave nature writing through the book. So I go and visit some beautiful natural spectacles. And the reason for that really it was to provide levity. It's a bit of some breathing space, space for reflection. We go down to the beach. We see beautiful flocks of waders and migratory pink-footed geese and all this sort of thing. And it just helps, hopefully, the reader, as it's always helped me through my life, to just pause and say, the world's not so bad. The world's actually really beautiful. We just need to take the rough with the smooth, you know, keep plugging away but not get too dispirited. And I guess to try and practically achieve that, I include lots of examples of, as we talked about, policy changes, legislation changes, things that are improving and also things that we can do to help. What did someone call it? I think an, an unflinching account, but nevertheless hopeful and optimistic and a bit joyful. Yeah, that's a very good summary, actually, of where the book goes, because it is weaved is a good word it is up and down you know there are parts where you're like oh jesus humans are just awful and there are bits that actually are very light again and and as you said about you bring the research and the science into it which could be 
you know, animal welfare, of course, is a very serious subject, as you've said, and, and, and like you said, it can sometimes be quite challenging to remain positive when you're discussing it, but you do bring levity to it and you do bring the research as evidence, I suppose, because some people still don't believe that animals have bad welfare, believe it or not. Mm. But you also bring humour by sprinkling anecdotes throughout. So it does weave up and down and you will be cheering and then crying and then laughing. It is very much like that. How did you choose which anecdotes to put in the book? Um, I suppose I retrofitted them a little bit. So there were certain, I, I chose, I thought about the animal welfare problems first and the issues. You know, we're so fortunate, aren't we, as vets and as vet nurses to have direct daily access to that human animal relationship across the world across types of animal use we have that almost like a backstage pass to how animals are treated and and appreciated by humans so for any issue that you wanted to raise there's typically something you've done or seen that kind of helps tell the story and make the point and then it has the prospect of going from a, a dry entry in a textbook that says okay this chapter is about let's say tail docking piglets that's very important but it's, it can be quite dry in isolation if we can then use as I try to storytelling, say what it was like when you were on a pig farm and you were seeing that done for the first time and you were sort of nervous about how you were going to do it. You weren't really challenging or reflecting on the ethics. You were just trying to learn how to do something that someone had told you was important to do. And they thrust a sleeping warm piglet into your hand and said, there you go, cut the tail off and then you'll be cutting the teeth off next. I mean, I, I hope it just you know gives it a bit of life and colour. And then we go down to the beach and think, why are we cutting piglets' tails off? And think, oh, but who's not cutting them off? Which countries have banned that? And how have they managed that? And how have they managed to overcome some of the objections that industry and others might make here? I suppose I did it that way. Just to give an example where I talk about the links, you know, this is a really horrible part. A lot of what happens to animals is sort of unwitting, isn't it? It's a product of culture and just the way things have been done. But deliberate cruelty, where people physically abuse animals or abuse them in other ways, can, as we know, be linked to abuse of people and vulnerable people. The anecdote I used to open that topic was when I was working in America. The vet I was with at the time, because I was doing a placement, went off to his, his car to get some equipment, and that left me with the owner of the yard. And there was a little foal nuzzling at my shoulder as I leant against the stable door. And this guy got up and walked over towards me and basically beat the foal in the face. I thought he was going to hit me in the face and ducked out of the way. But the, the telling point in the anecdote is that when he sat down, he said to me, are you married? And I said, no. And he said, well, sometimes you need to treat your women like that. And that was a really horrific and powerful moment. I hesitate, again, to pick out the, the worst parts because uh, can, it can sound quite depressing. But it's important, obviously, that we know about this. And now that that link is recognised, that we see that great interagency working, don't we, in the work of the links group, not least, who are making sure that social workers and police and vets and medics are all aware that flags any of them might get in their daily lives and in our consultations or whatever could be indicative of something, well, as or even more serious back at home. Funnily enough, I had Dr. Paula Boyden on about that in a previous episode in season one. So I will put the link to that episode and also their website in the, in the show notes as well. I didn't have quite as horrendous experience as that, but it's interesting, as you said, vets, even during our training, but also during our working life, have had lots of different experiences, both good and bad. And yeah, you were talking about the piglets and things, and it reminded me of when I was training, I was on a farm and I pulled up on the Monday morning, parked the car, was just giving myself a bit of a pep talk before I got out of the car to start, because I knew it was going to be horrendous. It was not a free range farm. And I remember looking out of the side of my car to see a JCB with its bucket scoop up in the air. 
And I looked at the bucket and I followed my eye line down. There were chains coming off of it. And then at the end of the chains was a pig being carried from one side of the farm to the other. And I thought, blimey, you know, my instant reaction is, Jesus, that's horrible. My logical brain kicked in and thought, no, 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 no. I mean, that's a massive pig. That's probably the only way it can actually be moved from one side. You know, if it's dead, it's the only way it can be moved across the, the farm, the easiest way to do it. And then the bucket lowered and the pig was lowered onto the ground. And that's when I saw the pig move. And I thought, my God, that pig's not dead. I thought, I'm in for two weeks of hell. And whilst there were bits of it that were truly horrible, which included, as you've said, the tail docking, the, the, the teeth cutting, which are all done for streamlining production. For people who don't know that are listening, the teeth are cut off so that the sows, the mums won't kick off the piglets because it hurts, obviously, because they've got teeth, so they'll suckle longer, so they'll get plumper and fatter. And the tails are cut off because they're kept in very barren conditions often. And pigs are incredibly intelligent creatures and they get very bored. And so they start to nibble each other's tails. So they cut them off. The point I was trying to make is whilst I was expecting and did experience some horrible moments on that farm, the farmer was actually a really nice guy, really got on with him. Nobody was more surprised than me this guy who who was driving that tractor at the time he was so desensitized to what was happening to the animals it was it was quite eye-opening but when we sat down at lunchtime and and you know shared a sandwich and a cup of tea he was the nicest guy very easy to talk to very nice very kind but was just desensitized because he'd been doing this for so many years and it was almost like you said he didn't see that the animals were sentient beings anymore I mean, I've had fascinating discussions like this over the years, both with obviously yourself now and previously, I mean, at at BVA, when the British Veterinary Association, when we were seeking to be the national representative voice for the UK veterinary profession, that of course includes lots of different species and therefore species associations like the Pig Veterinary Society and the British Cattle Veterinary Association, the Equine Vets and so on. So there's a range of species and there are also a range of ethical views on these sorts of matters. And veterinary bodies elsewhere in the world have really struggled with that because it can be quite divisive. They're contentious topics. Those colleagues who are working in these industries and with these industries can feel quite challenged or confronted even by the topic being raised. So to have a sensitive and respectful discussion on these sorts of topics that doesn't make anyone feel victimized or alienated, We go through the difficult discussions, BVA, that's through committee and then through council. Nevertheless, to eventually come out with a statement that says this is the way the world is now and this is why. We know why things are done, whether it's economics or practical considerations, whatever, but that we'd like to draw a line under. And we don't necessarily believe it can be changed tomorrow, but we'd like in a reasonable time frame to see that ended. That's a massive achievement, really. And it's kind of humanity and politics and the political part of human nature at its best coming together and working together towards a, a common aim. So there I'm talking about sort of being sensitive and respectful with colleagues. But as you say, there aren't generally cruel people behind all of this. There are people who are doing things the way that they've done them and they're trying to do the best job they can. I would maintain at all times that our primary focus as vets should be as the animal's advocate and the voice of animals and we're there to promote and protect the animal's interests over those of 
any other interests primarily. So that's not a naive blinkered view that the other interests don't exist, but we are there for the animals. But to have respectful and sensitive dialogue to achieve our animal welfare objectives is different to just rocking up with a drum or a placard, you know, and shouting for change. So I'd agree with you. And I, I really, really hope that that comes through in the book. I would like to do more with the likes of the NFU, the National Farmers Union, who increasingly engage on these matters of, of animal welfare and talk about them and don't shy away from them. I would like to think that if they read it, they wouldn't feel that I have bashed farming over the head by any means. I try and give the, the farmers perspective and explain to readers why things are happening the way they are, but also looking for the avenues for change that some farmers and in some countries, including the UK, are already adopting. I suppose when you shine a spotlight on good and improved practice that has a sense of reward and, and can feel enabling there is just for a finish on this there is some interesting research looking at farmers satisfaction and in particular pride in their work and when they are able to husband animals in ways that they themselves feel is appropriate and gives them the opportunity to behave in certain ways and doesn't rely on close confinement and mutilations and these sorts of things their well-being and their morale is much improved as you'd expect and they are much more willing and happy to fling open the barn door as they would say but they need to be rewarded for that of course through government policies and critically the economic returns that they get for doing things in that way yeah of course it's about balancing welfare with with the bottom line as it always is but i think more generally ultimately you know by sheer fluke of evolution humans are considered <laughs> by ourselves to be at the top of the evolutionary tree as it were what comes with that is a massive responsibility to look after everything else on the on the planet not only for our own benefit clearly but for the benefit of the animals that are already there human animal conflict is is massive in in all areas and and in fact in the final chapter you offer suggestions for how we can all use our choices to to influence change better change for animals on a personal level in our workplaces and on a more global level now you and i are just two of millions of people who care about improving animal welfare and halting the climate crisis as well. But we aren't the in necessary positions of power. Do you think there is enough will within humanity to turn the ship around? Yeah, I, I think so. So I, I agree that the absolute broad brush perspective on this is that we sort of need to shift from a position of dominion to a position of stewardship and respect. And the more that this information of, of animal sentience and understanding of animal needs and wants trickles out into human society we can't therefore continue to, to turn a blind eye as soon as you know about something then you take a decision even if you choose to do nothing and that speaks to our morality i mean i think what's unique about us in thinking about humans is that we have both foresight so we can project what's likely to happen into the future and decide if that's the future that we that we want and we also have a, a sense of morality, which is probably very much more developed than in the rest of the animal kingdom. So we can see into the future and make moral choices on what's right and, and appropriate. So if we're to truly act on those near enough unique human capacities, then we have to collectively change. And although we may not be power holders or in positions of power, I think nevertheless, as vets, we are trusted professionals and are seen as leaders in animal welfare. Now, there can be interesting discussions on the extent to which we truly act as as leaders. I think we've always led very well in clinic, putting animals' interests first in clinic. We do generally very, very well, but we're just getting to grips with 
using our voice more widely and kind of speaking up and speaking out about some of the practices that we've touched on today. And I think we need to build on that and maintain the momentum. There are many more issues that we, that we should have a, a view on. But when we do, that can help shape society's views. BVA has a national presence and they are effective at gaining media interests on these sorts of topics and being part of the national conversation. That can help shape and shift and inform society's views and when society's views change then it's much easier for politicians to act isn't it they it's difficult for them to come from left field and say right we need to do this to be kinder and more compassionate but if everyone starts asking about that and expecting it and saying well why aren't you raising this when you speak and write then we as a collective we the veterinary profession the veterinary nursing profession can absolutely change the mood music and really alter what's being talked about and what's being put forward as a priority so i do firmly believe that we all have power and influence in in that respect and if that flows from us being trusted professionals i like you don't take that for granted because we're you know we our trust relies on us being trustworthy i think part of being seen as trustworthy and credible and ethical is in turn to speak out on, on these sorts of issues so i think what's a risk for us is when others start talking about them and start bringing them to media attention and public attention and then it's raised that there are vets working in and amongst these industries doing these practices then suddenly it's on our watch we're supposed to be the guardians of animal welfare and we're essentially turning a blind eye or it's painted as us turning a blind eye and i think that's a big risk to our reputation yeah and i agree and and i and, and many others that i know of and work with do frequently put our head above the parapet and i've been very lucky that i've not been shot at too many times mm. for, to be honest yet but i will continue to do it to go back to your book, the the overarching theme is, you know, how nature has kept you grounded, I suppose. And I think it's a good suggestion to anyone who's not sure, listening to this, thinking, well, I don't think animals lot is that bad. I don't, you know, well, what are they talking about? All this namby-pamby tree hugging. Get yourselves out there. Get yourselves out in the woodland. Get yourself out on a walk. Even across farmland, you can see. I love listening to the skylarks flying over farmland near me. Get yourself out there and see how wonderful nature is. And hopefully that will motivate you to want to protect it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I do mention skylarks in the book. They're absolutely phenomenal, aren't they? Absolutely. Well, Sean, thank you so much. It's been an absolute blast talking to you today. I know it's not probably been the most uplifting of subjects, but I think we've managed to not make it dry, at least. I hope so. And I, I should say, Judy, uh, I mean, although the focus was on me as your guest, um, you just mentioned there your own advocacy and work, and I know that doesn't go unnoticed. You do loads as an individual, speaking out and speaking up for animals, and uh, this podcast is a big, big part of it, so massive thanks to you. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. That's really kind of you to say. Thank you. As you well know, animal welfare is my absolute passion. So I, I do what I can when I can. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you do want to get in touch with me, then you can simply email me on theunderdogvetpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch via Instagram, where you'll find me as, yes, the Underdog Vet Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe via your favourite platform. And please note that the Underdog Vet Podcast is entirely independent. It's just me, Dr. Judy Puddyfoot, speaking as an individual. No affiliations with any organisations, charity or businesses are made or implied unless I specifically mention it. <laughs>